Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce, and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. Today's episode is a live stream with James Lindsay that was recorded on Saturday, the 8th of January, 2022. I never know if I should publish the live streams as a podcast or not, but somebody requested it. So here you go. Here's the live stream with James. Uh, there were some audio issues. I'm sorry about that, but I didn't fix them till a day later because I didn't know what I had done, aside from spilling water all over myself at about 30 minutes in. Anyhow, here's James Lindsay. It would be wonderful. Um, so I just want to let you guys know, for the first par portion of this uh, live stream, we're going to talk about James's appearance on the Dr. Phil show. I have a two-minute clip. Was it longer, what actually filmed, than the clip that... Yes, actually. The oh. true story yeah. is that I came out... Well, I won't tell the whole story yet. But I came out and ranted for probably... I mean, I didn't have a timer. They take your phone away from you before you can go anywhere near the studio. And so um, I didn't have any kind of timer. And I was sort of in a flow, as you will see in the clip. But it was probably somewhere between five and seven minutes... Uh, there's an awful lot, including what I said at the very beginning, that's been cut out. Um, and so I don't remember everything that I said. Apparently, Dr. Phil says at the end of the show that somewhere online on the website, whichever website that happens to be, the unedited full episode will exist. But they cut me down to a rather ranty two minutes or a minute and 40 seconds or whatever. And, uh, I mean, Dr. Phil raising his hand and stuff like that really happened. I thought it was hilarious. I was like, I'm not done. <laughs> so, but, um, yeah, there was more, there was a great deal more. Should Probably I start about practicing that? Raising my hand. So I don't upset people by interrupting. You have to put it up high. Like you're doing a cult thing. Not That's... that way. Not that way. <laughs> Dude. These cameras aren't working for us, but you have to put it up like quiet. Everybody. I'm Dr. Phil. <laughs> Is he a gentle guy? He sounds like a cool guy. No, not really. Oh, okay. So he's pretty intense. Well, I, I don't know. He, he said out, off air, he said zero words to any of us. Oh. He just absconded, as it were. Okay. Okay. Well, there we go. Well, should we, do you guys want to watch this clip? That Play I, the I clip. Found? Okay, so Play let's it. see. Hopefully it works. Uh, we're going to click on this, and we're going to do R. There we go. And uh, we're going to play this, and hopefully the volume works. I don't know if you're going to hear this, James. You might want to just, I'll let you know when it's over with. Okay. If I could wave the magic wand, critical race theory should be rendered a historical artifact. Please welcome co-author of book, uh, Cynical Theories, James Lindsay. James, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Dr. Phil. You say this should be an artifact. We should just put this behind us. I do not believe the critical race theory tenet that says that racism is the ordinary state of affairs in our society and that if we don't dredge up a race consciousness that we can't get over it. I think this is actually a lie. It's very annoying to me to listen back and, to the back and forth here, in fact. I'm glad to be here to bring some knowledge. I take a lot of umbrage with the idea that we're going to talk about should we have critical race theory this or that because it's talking about racism or history when the fact of the matter is it's not are we, it's how are we. And I am 
shocked and appalled to hear the defensive side for critical race theory misrepresented this way, but they don't explain, for example, why the first paper called Toward a Critical Race Theory of Education by Gloria Lives and Billings was published in 1995. They don't explain why Richard Delgado's 2001 book explains on page five, for example, that it rapidly spread from law to other disciplines, especially education. They don't explain also in the exact same situation that Gloria Ladson Billings is one of the chief authors of a of a ed equity in Virginia that's bringing critical race theory into all of the state schools of, uh, of Virginia right now. You must breathe through your ears because you... <laughs> Yeah. I have read the vast majority of the major works in critical race theory that have been published since 1970 <laughs> to the most recent things, including, for example, in 2017, we have Allison Bailey writing a paper for Hypatia, an education paper, and she says that there's the critical thinking tradition, but what we're doing in critical pedagogy, which critical race theory is an integral, uh, integrated part of, is from a different set of tradition called critical theory, which is neo-Marxism, which is interested in studying the relationships of power rather than epistemic adequacy. You can look the paper up. It's called Tracking Privilege Preserving Epistemic Pushback in Critical Race and Feminist Philosophy Classrooms. That's not being caught in K-12 schools. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, congratulate, like, 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 All right, that's the clip. Sorry if you guys didn't hear it that well. That was the best that I had. It was somebody actually cell-phoned their TV, so. Yeah, best we can do, because it turns out to be difficult to find me. Oh, why is it, it turns out to, to be a little you? difficult to find that clip. Uh, certainly, Dr. Phil didn't put it out like he did some of the others. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I see people saying that I was probably on PCP or something or that I could be give Ben Shapiro a run for his money. No, I, I keep telling people this. No, I was just pissed off. I think we talked about it before on a live stream after I got back, and we were like, where's Dr. Phil's show? Why isn't it on the air? I did a podcast on my own about it. I was just pissed off. Um if you don't know, that clip is the end of the show. And so we have an hour-long show on TV, 48 minutes or 42 minutes or whatever it is, uh, recorded. And um, the last couple of minutes is that. And so what had happened was we were invited uh, to do a debate with some CRT experts about whether CRT is a thing that should be in schools or not. And... I thought this well, was cool, it's not whatever. In schools, though. I mean, it's oh, not of course not. Schools, no. I happened to be in Southern California at the time, anyway. So I changed a flight by a day. No big deal. Was able to do this pretty easily, and um, skated up there to be on Dr. Phil. And so what they said was it's going to be a debate. And so then we get there, and then they put us into um, the you know back room or whatever and they said well we're going to bring you guys out one at a time and then it was eventually revealed to me that they were going to bring me out last but they brought their crt expert guy out first that's dr sean harper who i've repeatedly put now on the social media and we can read through his his cv if you want here on the live stream i have it on my computer um his actual resume you can see how many hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars people like the bill and melinda gates foundation have given this guy to do critical race theory in education programs then he comes out and says it's really hilarious he talks for like five minutes framing the thing at the beginning of the show i'm like this guy's lying this definition circular blah 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 and then they bring out this guy derek wilburn he's the colorado dad three kids i think i don't know derek well i met him obviously we talked we had a decent exchange that day uh off the camera 
and bring him out. And he's just talking about his experience with the kids and what it's like being a black dad with this going on. And professor's like making fun of him. He's like, you know, talking about Richard Delgado and the book and critical race and introduction. And like Harper's all like, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, and it's just infuriating to watch. I'm backstage with Keisha King, Amy Henry. That's the blonde lady in blue. Everybody knows who Keisha is now. She's like America's sweetheart. And, um, I'm back there waiting with them. And it's like, holy crap, uh, this is a setup. You know, we're getting hot. It's like we're getting pissed because this was a setup where they were bringing out the expert to piss on moms and dads. And so I'm watching the experts lie and piss on this poor dad, like mocking his knowledge. And I'm starting to get pissed. And then they bring out the next person who's on their side. So now it's two on one against poor Derek. And it's like I'm sitting there thinking, man, I should be out there. Obviously, their domain experts out there, our domain experts locked back here in the back, and I'm supposed to come out dead last. And when it's two on one, it's really funny because the woman they bring out second straight up like is like, oh, it's so great that critical race theory is in schools right after the guy was like critical race theory is not in schools. And so it's like they contradicted each other and sort of hilarious. Um, but then their whole thing was like, that's not CRT. That's not CRT. That's not CRT. And then it went up back and forth. They brought out. Keisha and Amy, they brought out some people, some teachers and stuff. They eventually ran out of room on stage. So the next person they have to stick in the audience and that's on their side. Then there's somebody from our side named Tiffany Justice, who's the Moms for Liberty woman, who's super awesome. And she is Skyping in because she couldn't come and was in Florida. And so then Did finally, they have an iPad and least, a seat in the audience for her? They had no seat in the audience for Tiffany. They just oh. had a screen. And so then I got brought out into the people are assuming incorrectly that I sat in the audience the whole time. No, I sat in a room in the back the whole time. And at the very, very last minute, what's happening is I'm chilling out backstage about to go on. Like, here's the stairs. You climb the stairs. You're on the actual soundstage or whatever. I'm still having to wear this KN95 mask. They made me wear, even though they tested me for COVID twice by this point in two days tested me the day they drove down to freaking orange county where i was doing stuff the day before to test me for covid and then to shoot that sweet footage of me walking in the hallway in the hotel and looking out that window <laughs> like people are like he looks like he's about to cry they're like look out the window and try to look serious i'm like looking at the sun and like this <laughs> reflecting off this building and i'm like trying to think of like something positive and i'm like well i'll just think about my wife or something and then i look really sour like because i was having obviously very serious thoughts and so people are like he looks like he's about to cry i was like i'm looking into the reflection of the sun off of some glass building in orange county out of the window of a hotel by the airport by what is it john wayne airport or whatever they've got down there and so that's what's really happening there's your behind the scenes glory i had to walk up and down that freaking hallway for them to film me walking down the hallway like 11 times and this is in between two events. So I had done an event in the morning and at lunch and I like rushed back, met them at the hotel, crammed all this crap in. And literally, literally, I left that, went back to my room to put my like they made me take like five pairs of clothes up there, threw all my clothes in my room on a lower floor of the hotel, dashed down to the lobby, got in the car with like one minute to spare to be at the next event. And so it was like this was crammed in there. And so anyway, that's that's the background footage story. And then. I'm pissed off, though, by the time finally I get unleashed into the audience. I got my CAN-95 mask on, even though I had to be tested for COVID twice, once the day before in Orange County and once that day. And they're like, here, you have to wear this. And I'm like, I don't have COVID. We have two negative tests. I don't have COVID. Why do I have to wear a freaking CAN-95 mask here? And so I had to wear this stupid mask. And literally, they had this little paper bag with my name written on it, like a little, like, 
brown paper like lunch bag, but miniature sized with my name written on it. And I had to wear my mask until I went out in the audience, sat down in the seat, take off my mask, slide it into the bag. And they ran away real quick before the cameras turned on during the commercial break or whatever. And then I wasn't allowed to get out of that chair until I put my fucking mask back on. Like it's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. But this is what they did. So I sit in this chair in the audience and boy, oh boy, was I mad by the time I went out there. So people are like, why did he say that weird croaky voice? Thanks, Dr. Phil. Well, first of all, I haven't talked in like an hour. So your throat does weird shit. Second of all, I'm like fucking mad and trying to like tell myself, don't, don't go off, don't go off, don't go off, don't go off. And then I was like, no, I'm going to go off. And so mm, okay. <laughs> totally okay. going to go off. And so Dr. Phil asked some question, why do you say this is an artifact of history or whatever like that? And I did not say actually the thing that it okay, then he asked that me. before you started speaking or. Yes. After? Yeah. Before I said, okay. thanks, Dr. Phil. He asked the question and I kind of blacked out on what I said next, but I, it was definitely that I went into this big rant about why critical race theory is terrible. And the next thing you know, he's like, well, what are we going to replace it with? And I was like colorblind equality. And it looked, that's not on the clip. And like Sean Harper and that side of the panel look like they're about to crap in their own pants. When I said colorblind equality, which is apparently like critical race theory, bad words, numbers one, two, and three. And so they went like bananas. It was like kind of excellent TV for a hot minute there. And then it was like, all right, here's what we're going to do is I'm now going to catalog every fucking lie you people told for the, toward these parents for the last hour. Cause I've had it. I have had it listening to you people, bel- these this professor belittle these parents who are speaking the truth, who are telling the truth and then sit there and gaslight them on TV. And I was like, no, I'm not going to play some game here and like he, he, he circus of daytime television. I'm going to come out here and I'm going to call these fucking liars out and we're going to see what happens. Okay. And what happened was they cut it. It took, this was filmed August 25th, by the way, which it is, it aired on, on January 5th. So you can put together. And I saw some people saying the better discourses thing. Well, that was in November. So your timelines are all screwed up. I was pissed off in August and in October. Um, I think you were pissed off in September once in November too. Oh, I'm frequently pissed off. Oh yeah. Yeah. Pissed off is a, is a frequent occurrence. Uh, when I deal with, with lying and gaslighting and belittling of people. So that's what actually happened there. And I don't even remember what I said, but I do know that at one point I, I got pissed off and I said, and you put me in the audience like a second class citizen. And Dr. Phil was like in the back row, as a matter of fact, and Dr. Phil's like, it'll look the same to the audience at home as the people on the stage. They won't know the difference. And I was like, my 230,000 followers on Twitter will know the difference. And it was like, what? Because of everybody's going to know what it's like. This yeah. is my people. Yeah, my followers yeah. are my people, and they're going to fucking know that what happened here. I don't care about the, the. Everybody's like, you're not talking to the right audience. No, I'm not. I'm talking to the people right in front of me who are assholes, and I'm putting on a performance for people who recognize what I do, and they're going to recognize that what Dr. Phil did was set up. Well, his producers or whoever did it put up a setup to make critical race theory look good and parents look bad. And so then they bring me out last. They edited me. I thought fairly okay. I don't think they people say I look like a raising, raving idiot, but I, I don't. Um, as a matter of fact, from an objective point of view, my own, I certainly don't. Uh, in fact, I look excellent, like top score daytime TV. Yeah, you look like Hugh um, Grant, actually. I, like mid-90s Hugh Grant. 
Well, I mean, I brought my own clothes. They made me wear that gray jacket, so I don't know if I like wore weird clothes, but. So let's just pretend that um, we would have to watch the whole thing in context, the whole hour, and see if that was a crescendo or if it uh, gave some sort of catharsis to uh, the people who were frustrated throughout the whole thing, and you finally lay it down, or if, in fact, uh, you missed the mark somehow. We don't know, outside of the context of the entire episode as it's aired, and then the unedited version, and then your story as well. But if you had a chance to... Take the uh, passion and expand. You had a little bit more time, a little less anger. What were you really trying to say in that moment? I, I picked up if we don't dredge up a race, racial consciousness um, or something about uh, CRTs trying to evoke a racial consciousness in order to dispel racial consciousness. Uh, what, what are some of the points now that you have some more time to make them? All right. So we'll get to the points about critical race theory in a second, because I'm going to reiterate what I was trying to do was I was trying to expose the panel as a bunch of frauds and liars. So that's my objective. What was I trying to do? I was trying to take, for example, if I don't know what they cut and what they didn't, I actually don't have a television. So I only saw like clips. I didn't actually see the whole episode. So I don't know how they cut the rest of it. But near the beginning, when Derek was, you got Sean comes out, Sean Harper, and he lays the whole thing out, CRT guy. And you got Derek comes out and Derek's like, this is what's going on. And he says, when I was reading, you know, blah, 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 and Delgado. And then, you know, Harper like makes fun of it. Like he doesn't have it right. And then he says something about something, you know, back to 1989, da, 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 da. And Harper's like, 1989 it's from the 70s (laughs) but the founding conference of critical race theory was in madison wisconsin 1989 so one of the rants that i actually went on with with um with uh harper there and that did not make it onto what was aired was you know you know you know you made fun of this dad and you know that the founding conference was in 1989, or you're not even really a critical race theorist, because how in the world would you not know that if you've been teaching critical race theory for 13 years? And so you know, and you made fun of this dad, you're a fraud. And so I don't know if I called him a fraud on TV, but this was definitely what I was going for. So if I had more time, I would have laid into more of their lies. That's all I was intending to do by the time I went out there was just to lay into these lies. And then Derek, the last word of the show actually wasn't – I don't know where they edited that woman in or if it was actually said at that moment like amongst other things where she's like, but that's not in KU12. The last word of the show was Derek turning to Dr. Phil, pointing with that humorous like, hey, hey, gotcha, you know, cute, like not being an asshole. And they're like, I told you it was 1989, and everybody laughed. After I went, so that was actually the last thing that happened. So Derek actually made a joke, diffusing some of the tension that I obviously created, and so, um, whatever. Uh, so that if I had more like time, I would have exposed sport, more lies. Right. It's a good sport for him to to say. That, that was. said, I can talk about, for example, some of these different points so we can slow down and not speak yeah. quite so quickly, and. Expand upon some of these points. For example, you you asked me a moment ago specifically about the point of critical race theory is to raise a racial consciousness so that we can dispel a racial consciousness in the long run. This is the standard communist thing. The idea is that if we raise racial consciousness in everybody, you'll have a basic uh, revolutionary base that's racially aware that realizes that we have to have a revolution in society because everybody's conscious that their race structures them at the level of who they are as human beings. That's called structural determinism. And when they have that awakened 
racial consciousness, then we can have a racial revolution and we can enter into a new phase of history that's going to be racial equity, which is a managed state of cultural and even physical economy where racial disparities are are corrected for shares are adjusted so that racial groups are on average made equal. And Mm -hmm. the idea with communism in general is with Marx, it was class consciousness. And when you wake in this class consciousness, they're going to seize the means of material production. And then we're going to redistribute shares equally so that everybody gets their equal share. And eventually this will become spontaneous and we can get rid of the state and the administered part of the economy. And that's when you have communism. Same thing here, that if everybody gets a racial consciousness, then we can enter into a state where racial equity as a managed, administered state of affairs that redistributes shares racially to make things equal will eventually become – will become normal and then eventually spontaneous. And when it's normalized and spontaneous that everybody just expects and doesn't know how to operate in a society outside of racial equity, then it will become – unnecessary to continue managing and administering it, which is called racial justice. We but will have achieved a post-racial society. Will, will colorblindness then be allowed to no. not be evil? So so racial consciousness will always be maintained, but Correct. it will be maintained in order to equalize constantly. Right. The idea will be that you don't need a Department of Anti-Racism mandated by constitutional edict to continue to make racial outcomes equal. People will just recognize that there needs to be racial equity, which requires them to still have a racial consciousness. But what will go away is the idea that there is an oppressor versus oppressed dynamic between these racial groups, because that will become redundant and unnecessary because the uh, spontaneous equity society, aka racial justice, will have replaced the need for such a thing. We spoke about this last time, but uh, it, it seems like a lot of the proponents of communism are working through some form of resentment, and to suppose that that resentment will go away once you get your way doesn't make sense, because that if that's the fuel you run on, then what what is your identity going to be about without that resentment, without that conflict, without that glorious revolution? I know they haven't necessarily thought that far. They They throw out that psychology uh, from their consciousness. I don't know, but it just doesn't seem like. No, they're just wrong about how people work. I mean, it's all it boils down to is they're, they're just wrong about how people work. They think that the state been having been given this inordinate amount of power over other people will recognize eventually that it's redundant and unnecessary to continue doing what it does and will therefore just disband itself. Um, that's not going to happen. People don't let go of power, especially when that power is arbitrary and artificial. Uh, secondly, as you say, when it's rooted in resentment um, and that resentment is allowed to curdle and justify terrible behavior, people continue to find justifications for continuing to be resentful and hateful and abusive. Um, it's a complete misunderstanding of how human psychology and sociology actually work. Uh, but well, this is the answer to that, you know, post-Marx. We can read, for example, in Paulo Freire, uh, the the uh, education the theorist. Pedagogy of the Oppressed is his most famous book, but a less famous book that I've been reading this past week is The Politics of Education. And he talks in The Politics of Education very explicitly about the need for the revolution to be perpetual. He says that when the critical consciousness is raised and you achieve something of the revolution, that the need for critical consciousness does not diminish but increases. 
And so you have to continue to get more and more critically conscious until the point where everything is perpetually revolution and everything is constantly viewed through an increasingly critical mindset. It's a cult concentrating itself uh, because it's not connected to reality. Um, so the answer there is that their resentment will be channeled back into being more justified as the next stage of a revolution that's going to be perpetual. Okay. So it's it's a it's a big setup for the next thing. It's 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 all and always has been a power grab. Yeah. It is a means by which the people who peddle this theory justify themselves as being the rightful inheritors of power. That's all it is and is all it's ever been. And critical race theory, this is why the operative definition that I give for critical race theory now, and as a matter of fact, I have this book coming out soon called Race Marxism about critical race theory being race Marxism. And the first thing I put in the book, chapter one, defining critical race theory, first definition I give, critical, I've put this on Twitter like a million times, critical race theory noun, calling everything you want to control racist until you control it. Because it's hmm. all it is. It's oh, so that's why brand. people con constantly call you racist then. Because they want to control me, of course. Oh, okay. Or they want and to date me, actually. What they, oh, they, they want to date you. Like, they also like, want to date my chin. Fig you too? Like, well, well figs they're some... mad because they know that they, 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 they see Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as a beautiful object who probably has a higher chance of dating me than they do. And then they also realize that AOC, because my handle on Twitter for a little while was won't date AOC, uh, that AOC has a zero chance of dating me. Oh, no. I know. It's tragic. And, then what, and so then they realize chances? that their chances of dating me are less than zero. And in wanting to date me so bad, they make comments about my chin. They make comments about me being manic. They make comments about me not knowing what I'm talking about. They never make comments about my penis being small, as it happens. But actually, they do. But they make comments about a lot of things. And it's all very petty and it's all just – they call me racist or sexist or misogynistic or transphobic or heteronormative or something. And the point of these labels is actually to control you. They call you racist because then you are going to lose your moral authority to stand on your own or to be regarded by your community because they're socialist man. Like Marx talked about, we are a social animal and therefore we are – Social man is the highest expression of humanness. Mm -hmm. So how you are in relation to your social environment is the key object that they're focused on. So if they can diminish your moral authority by calling you a name, then they can control you because you'll behave differently to regain that moral authority. You'll behave differently to regain that social standing. Um, and then they control you. So There's you won't cool, say things. If I just want to plug this book. It's a brilliant book. It's called oh, Propaganda by Jack Ellul, I believe. Did our but, friend Dr. Relegator talk you into that? Uh, some I, I did a live stream about Ted Kaczynski's uh, thing, and somebody's like, you know what? Ted ripped off all this stuff from this guy. So I've been reading that. And he says something to the effect that the, the communist isn't uh, concerned with human nature. They're, they're concerned about the human condition. I know it's just a phrase, but it's just something that I've been mulling over uh, about you know, the, the socially constructed man rather than the, the natural, you know, embodied uh, human and then yeah, the nature yeah. inside of it. I mean, that's a it's funny because, you know, earlier you were texting me like, do you want to do this? And I was like, dude, I'm reading this hard stuff by Marx. <laughs> I was reading the economic <laughs> and philosophic manuscripts that actually go into Marx's oh. views on these things. And like his uh, own writing. Yeah. You're, you're, OK. Actual Marx. Yeah, this economic and philosophic manuscripts is pretty interesting. It was written in 1844. For context, the Communist Manifesto was written in 1848. So it was four years before, and it was actually notes mostly on Hegel. 
and where Hegel he thought was right and where Hegel was wrong. But he also comments on like Adam Smith and some of the other so the other economists and socialists at the time. He was in Paris, sometimes referred to as the Paris Manuscripts for that reason. Um, it, but it wasn't published until 1932. And so uh, I don't know who or how many people actually had access to it, but it all lays out like the nature of man and what man is and how man is differentiated from the animals. It's it's okay. a very religious book. Um, okay, what, 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 could you uh, summarize like what what's the difference between the man and and uh, the animal? What's well, that? yeah, that the man has a conscious vision for what his work will produce. So animals obviously have to do work to obtain food or shelter or protect themselves from predators or whatever the thing is that they, they exert energy in the process of doing their day-to-day -day living and man as an animal does the same thing he does he, he exerts effort in the the process of you know securing a living for himself but the difference is that when an animal even if it's something like a bee or whatever that's building a complicated nest like a hive or whatever um when an animal does it it According to Marx, just had I just spill water all over myself. Could you keep on talking? I need to yes, clean you can clean up yourself. So, so for for Marx, the animal is just satisfying its immediate needs, whereas the human, the person, the man, has a conscious vision connected to his act of production, and so he's bringing forth something within his consciousness into the world. So, um, like if you see, I don't know if you've ever, my neighbor has chickens. So the chickens go out and they're like scratching at the ground. And it's really kind of fun to watch. A lot of other birds, once you keep chickens, you'll notice that other birds do this too. They scratch at the ground and then they jump backwards and they eat the bugs that they uncovered. It's kind of a neat little thing they do. Oh, that's what and they're so, doing. I watch the sparrows do it. I'm like, what are you guys eating? What are you guys eating? Gravel? beetles and yeah. grubby things that Smeagol would eat probably. Right, Scott Adams? Um, Klaus Schwab. And so, uh, yeah, so anyway, the, the, the bird interacting with its environment is doing work to satisfy its immediate needs. But the human being would go out and look and say, I could turn this into a farm. I could turn this into a garden. I could turn this into something. And, you know, yeah. maybe they're going to build raised beds or boxes. Maybe they're going to till the soil. Maybe they're going to, like, you know, lay, lay, what do they call them? plow rows troughs or something they're going to organize the soil they're going to have it but when they do so they're going to have a vision that the chicken has no vision in the whole world for what it's doing why it's kicking leaves out of the way it just knows it'll find bugs the human yeah. being knows that if it were to rake up the leaves and organize things that it could actually turn this thing into a garden that's going to grow soil and maybe be beautiful um and so he's got a vision for what he's making when he's putting forth activity this is what yeah. marx refers to as productive labor and so for marx productive labor not only makes the world, but makes the man in the world. And so man is creating himself by creating the world in which he is reflected back into himself. This is That's why this is alchemical, by the way. Um, that's a hermetic religion point of view. Okay. That, that the world, uh, that, that the creator can't understand himself except by creating an abject other outside of itself through which it understands itself. Yeah. Gnosticism. And so man has a vision for the world and acts as a subject upon that as an object, but in so doing makes himself the object of his own work. This is the Marxist okay. theology. So and kind so, of like a bootstrap the theory of... The man, uh, the man sees in his mind what he intends to create before he creates it. So the man has creative capacity, much like the gods, that and, Marx doesn't and, believe in. 
And does this um, jump somehow to man's responsibility because he has this uh, foresight, this Promethean uh, ability to, to see into the future? He's responsible for the choices that he makes and then turns human beings into labor or sacrifices his own labor? Is this uh, yeah. the, like so that's the stepping stone? Right? the consciousness, right? So, yeah. so and, but of course, Marx's whole theory is one of alienation and exploitation. So what he sees is that certain people have figured out ways to exploit the labor potential of other people and basically to steal their life essence from them and turn it into profit. And that's more or less what he hates in the whole world. But if man were to truly recognize himself as social man, where every man works for every other man in terms of what the society represents and what the society is actually doing in the act of creating history, then all men would be working together to create history. And because they're working together to create history, then the conflict would resolve and there would be no need for a division of labor and everybody would work according to their talents and take according to their need, et cetera. And so, yes. So how does this transpose into race consciousness? How, how does the racial man fit into this Marxist theory? Do, does it do the CRT or race Marxism break it down to the individual, like knowing one's race and seeing race as the means by which you know, labor is extracted from other... Cultural uh, content, actually. Okay. Yes. Yes. So, so this is purely a media kind of thing. Race this is a secondary a thing. This is about cultural uh, phenomena, and that's mediated okay. through the creation of the structure, the structure of society. The structure of society is the dialectical uh, output of the superstructure, which is those who are in the bourgeois position with the infra who create the ideologies that maintain and order society against the infrastructure, which Marx called the base. And so within critical race theory, you have whiteness or white supremacy works as the whiteness is the superstructure, white supremacy is the ideology. Systemic racism is the structure that it creates out of that superstructure, and the impact, the imposition of racism is the dialectical interplay between the base and the, or sorry, the superstructure and the infrastructure that creates this structure. So the human relations that Marx saw in terms of labor relations, they now see in terms of race relations or sex relations or gender relations or whatever other relations, but in critical race theory, it's race relations. And that that actually creates, in a sense, the fabric of what society really is. And so raising the consciousness, both within the racial minorities, that they're in this uh, infrastructure position, but also within the um, within the, the bourgeois people, the people who have access to whiteness, um, so that they understand themselves to be exploiters. Uh, raising that consciousness and then placing them in dialectical opposition is supposed to work out that conflict. And... It's, it's considered, I mean, Marx drawing off of Hegel believed that alienation is a necessary component to the resolution of alienation. That's just the natural thing if you believe that the world is, is created as an abject other so that you can understand yourself. So you, you first perceive it as other, and then that's a dialectical opposition, and then you work out that other. This is the master-slave dialectic in its most general form, and eventually you realize that it's not, in fact, other at all. It is, in fact, part of you. You've created it, and you are synonymous or con continuous with that creation. So the same thing's happening with race, that there's a conflict across race that's created by the white supremacists who have erected a superstructure of whiteness, and it generates a, a structure of 
systemic racism that orders society and that is imposed upon and disenfranchises the racial lower class, the racial working class, if you will, who are the ones who are tr producing the true cultural products that are culturally appropriated by the people who have access to whiteness and uh, an act of alienation and uh, exploitation from their work, their cultural labor. And so the goal is then to create those inverted from one another double consciousnesses of race and then to place them in juxtaposition with one another so that the dialectic can play out. The dialectic in this case turns out to probably work out to be a race war in reality. Um, but, uh, I mean, Marx did say that violence is the midwife of the revolution, so that's probably no problem for them. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but what what you have in the the infrastructure class with the, the belief with this master slave dialectic is that the people in the slave position have a dual site they're slaves within the master's world so they understand the master's position and the slave's position within that world so they have yeah. double consciousness this is where we du bois called it double consciousness in the souls of black folk and asked openly the question if it's possible to be american and negro at the same time and yeah. in so asking actually explicitly says that the um, the the Negro aspect would not want to bleach its soul, he says, with just American whiteness. But at the same time, the American aspect wouldn't want to lose that because what America has to offer to both the Negro and to the world and to Africa is so great. And so you're looking for, again, a dialectical synthesis. So you have this within the racial minority in this worldview, you have a... Um, you have a dialectical relationship between two levels of consciousness. Myself as a individual, or as Marx would say, as a subject, and myself as a racialized minority, as Marx would have it, as an object. And those two things are being dialectically analyzed within yourself. Now, within whites, what you're going to have, you're going to have to awaken a racial consciousness. This is Robin D'Angelo saying there's no such thing as a positive white identity. I strive to be less white, etc. And so what you're actually trying to do is awaken a double consciousness within whites as uh, people who see themselves as a racial default and the racial superior group and the maintainers and, and beneficiaries of whiteness, but at the same time as somebody who's engaged in exploitation as a result of this. And so somebody who's actually stripping others of their humanity and thus not fully human because they're a dehumanizing force. And so you're supposed to awaken this double consciousness of um, whiteness in uh, – of human and whiteness within the whites and of human and blackness, say, within blacks or other racial minorities. It would be, you know, Chineseness or whatever. And then those things are actually inverted, right? So with, with, with the racial minorities, they're supposed to see their racial identity as a positive thing, as a, as Kimberly Crenshaw phrases it, as an anchor for subjectivity and a site of a fruitful politic of identity. That's what Kimberly Crenshaw says about it. Um, and then within whites, there's no such thing as a positive white identity. So you, ha you have these two things in inverse to one another, and then you put them next to each other, and then that creates the full allegedly is this is what critical race theory is designed to do It's supposed to create the full racial dialectic that will eventually lead to racial justice where racial consciousness is merely a tool by which we realize that we always constantly have to be redistributing according to race um and what we're redistributing is also not just material resources yeah. but also cultural resources and cultural standing yeah status um, so that's really what's going on with critical race theory. That's yeah. it. Really, is Marxism using race? But why is it working so well? To why is it salient? Why why are people giving millions of dollars to these race peddlers? And well, those are two questions. 
They are two questions. Those are two very different questions. Why is it salient and why are people giving millions of dollars to it? Don't have the same answer. Why is it salient? Because resentment sells and racial identity resentment, it turns out to be very easy to sell. Well, um, I, and, and I think that it's not just resentment. It's also uh, a, a form of pity, too. You have the white savior oh, yeah. complex being yeah, uh, there's evoked, all so kinds of, and, and pity There's all on. kinds of emotional and effective products that are easy to sell through this oppressor-oppressed model. Why are people dumping millions of dollars into it? Because it fucking works. It doesn't works work to, to create what? what they say. It works to cause <laughs> massive social conflict that you can manipulate for other ends. While kind of looking like, like that massive social conflict is a net beneficial product, you're like Goldman Sachs dumping billions of dollars into this or Bill and Melinda Gates dumping billions of dollars into this over the past however many years makes them look like they're taking a stand for civil rights where what they're actually doing is creating massive amounts of division and discord and chaos into which they have the opportunity to move and act as they will less impeded. Hmm. Kind of reminds me of um, the uh, the Empire cringing back on January six point two or two point oh. Yeah, they had that yeah. the whole uh, insurrection celebration, which is just n- nauseous. It makes me so nauseous. It's 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 a noxious, pernicious thing, and it's it's absolutely it's evil. It's the closest thing to evil. What what the they're doing? What they've done. hasn't figured out yet that far too large of a segment of the population sees their attempt to create hyper reality or the Truman Show. Uh, in real time. It's a bad point. reality. If they wanted to create a reality, it seems like they, they had so many different options. And they went with this. They went with, yeah, we're going to do a summer of riots. We're going to play them down. And then we're going to have a two-hour riot. We're going to play that up. And, and it's just we're, we're supposed to I, – and I don't know why so many people buy into it. I, don't, I know I, that most people don't, but I don't know why so many people buy into that. So there's a number of things here. I think that they're, you know, they only have so many cards and they have to stick with them. So like J6 didn't go the way they wanted it to go. It wasn't nearly as crazy as they'd hoped. People went in, as our uh, late friend Norm MacDonald pointed out, they they walked to the statuary room and completely respected all the velvet ropes. And, you know, the guy's stealing a podium. Granted, that's stealing a podium, but he's, like, waving, you know. He's, everybody's some friendly. somewhere. Like, we've seen the footage. There was, it's not to downplay violence that did occur, because there was violence that occurred. But by and large this is you know not what an insurrection looks like and they were counting on it to look a lot more insurrectiony i think and so they were like well we're good at creating reality out of narrative let's just run with it and if you look at the polling about like what a lot of registered democrats think about it apparently it does work on somebody okay uh, yeah but, so it does yeah but the, but they're running with um they're running with what they got uh more or less and what as you said what I don't, I don't think that they fully appreciate just how off the rails they are, and how people are actually, you know, very cognizant of the fact that they're trying to manufacture this completely fake reality. I mean, the the January sixth thing this year, I don't know. I I locked onto this big time. I actually recorded a podcast that should come out soon about it last night. Um, the January sixth, New York Times did an article on the first, I think that was every day is January 6th now. And it's literally just, they've just imported the thesis statement of, of repressive tolerance 
You know, okay. Where you know where we have to justify to, you know repression of the right, and we must tolerate everything from the left uh, because we're according to Marcuse, because we're in the post-fascist era. And so every day, according to Marcuse, in the post-fascist era is one of clear and present danger where this form of repression is necessary. Okay. Every day is January 6th now. And okay. so they're literally trying to bring in, you know, this justification for that Marcusean totalitarian vision uh, under the auspices of the best thing they had. Because remember, they tried to set up some more stuff, right? They had that Fed Boy Summer thing where, like, the dudes in the shorts and the sh sunglasses showed up and, like, some feds arrested each other not knowing they were feds. And, like, that's all that happened because we didn't take the bait. Like, normal people were, like, not going to that. Now they got this one on the 23rd and people are like, eh, I'm not going to that. You know, it's like they took what they – they have been building up. And I think, honestly, they believe a lot of it, that the right wing is fanatical, violent, et cetera, to a degree that it's not, that it just isn't. Um, and even insofar as it is, it has one one thousandth of the media and elite footprint of the radical left. Right. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing is, of course, like these people live in these they live in total bubbles, like the D.C. bubble, the Beltway bubble or whatever, New York, L.A. Yeah. Like these people are like these people think there's still a freaking raging pandemic going on. They have no idea that like 97% of the country by land area, at least, is just back to normal. Like we're just living our lives. Like n the only thing is, it's just this annoying noise that happens on TV. Uh, that's the essence of the pandemic is an annoying noise that happens on TV combined with edicts from our tyrannical leaders that are completely out of touch with how any of us perceive this thing. And so they, they live in these bubbles they don't consume, I mean, I'm sure some of the strategist people do, but they don't consume media outside of their sphere because they would be contaminated by its conservative evilness, its white supremacy, its racismness. They don't consume it. They don't go. They don't go to CPAC and sit and listen and try to hear what conservatives are saying. They don't go to Turning Point and listen. They go to try to get gotcha moments on film if they go at all. Hmm. So they're not actually, pay they're completely out of touch and they live in these little bubbles where they don't consume media outside of their bubble, they constantly are con confirming their own their own ideas to one another, and they have no idea how out of touch they are, and they think that they can keep molding reality with the narrative because it's working on them. Now, like I said, I'm sure some of their bigger strategists must be aware that things are going very badly, and that's, I think, why we're seeing the big switch in COVID stuff all of a sudden, you know, where they're like, oh, yeah, by the way, it turns out it does, you can transmit it. Maybe we're only going to have five days out of work and, you know, blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. They're, yeah. they're, they're, they're doing a total limited hangout. Oh, wow, the vaccine isn't quite as good as we thought it was, but it's still really good. But it's not What's as good a limited as... hangout? That sounds like a technical term. Limited hangout is a techni technical term. It, the the f first one that I know of that was named or where it got its name was from Watergate with Nixon. And basically, the jig was about to be up. They were about to be caught. And somebody suggested, you know, we can't just let it all hang out. And somebody's like, well, what if we do a limited hangout? Oh, we let okay. a little bit of the truth hang out, but keep the essential <laughs> details right on behind okay. closed doors. Yeah. So, okay. yeah, yeah, the hangout there, it does not it's a term that doesn't make sense until you realize that it's let it all hang well, out hang is out, yeah. the hangout okay. that's involved. Oh, which is actually yeah. the evergreen motto, funnily enough. Well... If you didn't know that. But yeah, the point of a limited hangout is that you start telling some of the truth to regain your credibility while leaving out the essential details when you're involved in a criminal conspiracy, so namely can, Watergate. 
Can we put um, this into a dialectical uh, tension? Uh, and I don't know if that's a proper thing that you want to even engage in, but the, the CRT Marxist, race Marxist, agitating constantly for a revolution, always, mm -hmm. and then we're always going to be a revolution. And then the Marcusean repressive tolerance, every day is a revolution, but it's the wrong revolution. It's not our revolution, it's their revolution. Uh, I, it, it sounds two-faced, but maybe it's not two-faced. Maybe there's a dialectical like unity and, and a beauty and a simplicity, a Hegelian over overcoming of, of some sort of yes fallen and no, nature. So. Actually, yes and no, um, there is. But it turns out that the woke don't know that they're being used yet. <laughs> the woke have many Marcusean elements, and they've taken up a lot from Marcuse because Marcuse was ultimately the one that inspired a lot of the, the Marxist-style philosophy that went into the identity politics stuff. He's the one that called for it. Yeah. But the woke actually don't realize that they got completely redirected by—well, they, they might realize this—by Paulo Freire— um, the woke are much more Freirian, which is like the personal is political. Everything is a teaching moment. The teaching moment's point is to raise critical consciousness. There's always a need for more critical consciousness, blah, blah, blah. Whereas the Marcusian thing is way actually more directly, you know, fruitfully revolutionary, like how to actually do something to, to create a new society. And so what you whereas the Marcu the Freirian thing is let's all whine about our fucking feelings all the time. And, and everybody's equal and everything's politics and everything's a teaching moment. And the point yeah. of every teaching moment is communism. Okay. That's more of a, the, the Evergreen State College. Uh, what happens? Yes. What that would be very there. Freirian. Okay. Yeah. Now, okay. people like Klaus Schwab at the World Economic Forum are not Freirian, but they understand that they can use Freirian people to their advantage. They are Marcusian. They want to create a repressive tolerance state where there are the people. In, it's really it's funny because it's an inversion of Marcuse uh, because Marcuse says he's anti-technocratic and they're like, no, we're going to use this to make a technocracy and we're going to shape a technocracy out of Marcuse's ideas, which the Marxists would say real communism has never been tried yet. It's been co-opted by the fascists. Co-optation has happened again. So they'll have their get out of jail free card at the end of this. But they actually have a new world order kind of program in mind it's on the other side of the Great Reset. Mm -hmm. And they're using the woke because the woke are extraordinarily easy to use, extraordinarily predictable. And they're just, frankly, chaos agents. All they do is make a mess of everything they get a hold of. But once they get lit on fire with this kind of very Freirian woke religion, they never stop. They they're literally insufferable. Yeah. Um, the only thing the, worse the, than a woke person. January sixth was two hours, and in Portland still the the, the Freirians of Portland, if we can call them that, are still night after night after night doing or, their little no no no, 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 no probably the, the yeah. Freirians are at school. Now the people oh. that are in the street that are Antifa are pro, that are those are Marcusians. Okay, but they're not yeah. high level Marcusians. They're uh, no, I mean, they're more true. They're shock troops. Okay. But their vision is more in line with Marcuse. But not with, with Schwab and not with the World Economic Forum. Yes, with them. Oh, okay. So Antifa and uh, Antifa would get in line to kick, uh, to kiss Dick Cheney's hand like all of the uh, neoliberal Democrats did on January 6th. They would say that they, don't, they wouldn't, but of course they would. Okay. Because they want power i guess is that is, when it comes yeah. down to it they, they what it want, boils uh, down to a frarian thing wants wants a power but an emotional experience of power yeah. whereas these uh antifa slash neoliberals which is i you're gonna have to tell me how those things work together are they all useful idiots for each other or? there's a lot of useful idiots okay there's yeah. a lot of useful idiots 
um, nested within one another. Well, what you've ultimately got going on with like the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, that contingent is they've actually got a vision for a new world. They need two things in order to achieve it. One is societal chaos to break the existing society so that it's dysfunctional. Both the woke and the Antifa types who are plebs are very useful for this project, but in different ways. So they make use of them according to their strengths. The second thing they need is a justification. And so the model that they're using is going to follow from a social credit system that's going to be based off of ESG, which we've talked about before, environmental, social, and governance um, scores. And so the social part is all going to be based off of this woke crap. And the main reason is because if they put that woke carrot in in the ESG model, then they get all these stupid woke radicals on their side. And, oh, no, you know, and that's why they're kissing the— kissing dick cheney's ring or whatever you know i have to be careful about kissing and dick in the same time yeah yeah i've almost stepped on that one too but that's why is because under this stupid model kind of evil brilliant model of esg they wrap up all the environmental radicals all of the social justice radicals and then all of the technocrat governance radicals into one pot. And you say, they say, basically you guys are the most, they, they figured out these are the most useful people to, to change society. It's the governance people you really got to watch out for. And the, the environmental and the social sides are actually just the things that cause the chaos and create the justification. We have to have a more socially just world or else blah, blah, blah. We have to have an environmentally, sound world or we're going to have a climate catastrophe but you can see that this is a sham for example by the number of what is it some umpteen billion plastic masks or something floating in the ocean now and all these plastic tests this is an environmental catastrophe off of this coof well why in the coof management zero covid policy and, and utter failure well why are they why why is that good if it's an in ESGE catastrophe because it's super good G. It's super good governance. It's super good technocrats telling people what to do and people doing it. And so you can see that the E and the S are actually just um, pretexts. And they are tools to get the social justice warriors who are fucking insufferable and the environmentalists who are complete idiots to go and cause relentless agitation in society that stupid people and leftists tend to go along with. Oh, yeah, we do need more social justice. Oh, my God, everything's racist. Let's change everything. Oh, no, the planet's on fire. Ah. And you could trick. And so then you have like 85% of Democratic voters are like, oh, no, January 6th was like the worst thing. It's as bad as Pearl Harbor. Which well, is, was, was Trump effective against this or, or just a stopgap? Or did he eventually uh, play into this whole thing? Complicated. Or, yeah. And we, now we do have to acknowledge that we're celebrating the great Orange Day. Is right. it? It is the anniversary of uh, of of President Trump being removed from Twitter because oh. every day is January 6th now. If okay. you want to know why they removed him from Twitter, because once January 6th happened, every single day mm-hmm. exhibits clear and present danger yeah. that the distance between word and deed could become far too short, which is exactly what Marcuse said is why you have to repressive tolerance. It's shocking how— okay identical this logic is so they had to remove the sitting president from social media and that was today one year ago so since we're talking about orange man um our our Mm -hmm. president friend orange man um who is all four of i don't know if you know they fixed rushmore and it's all four heads now they fixed it he's the hydra now it's it's all him and they painted it orange 
Oh, really? Bright they don't orange. just like, let the sunset and University the dawn of Tennessee do it? They orange actually... on one of them, and like suntan orange on another, and like University of Texas orange on another, <laughs> and then, you know, I don't know, Sunny Delight orange, I guess, on the last one, probably. That's just kidding. Sunny Delight orange is UT Knoxville orange. So, um, redneck orange. No, but more seriously, was Trump effective with this? Yes and no, and it's a complicated question. I don't think he fully understood all of it. He had a large number of advisors who were making sure that he stayed uh, within boundaries. So in a sense, he was controlled a bit. Um, But had he, like, if you look at the differences between Trump and DeSantis, and this isn't to put, I, I like DeSantis, but not to put him on a pedestal or suggest even necessarily that he should be president, because I don't know the answer to that question. But if you look at the differences, you can see that um, Trump has incredible instincts for fighting against these things and for putting these kind of uh, pompous people in their place. Mm-hmm. But DeSantis has a much clearer view of what's going on and why it's going on uh, and is um, a bit shrewder in what advice he will and won't listen to. And so he actually is able to make far more effective counterstrikes and to, to lay more effective plans. So I think, I mean, I'm not convinced. I talked to a guy on a podcast recently who's convinced that Trump is controlled opposition. It's theater. He's one of the elites too. He was just pretending he's a character the you know buffoonish demagogue character and he played that character in order to be able to move the agenda along and i don't actually agree with that analysis i can see how one could become so cynical especially given that he signed some executive orders uh that are you know pretty concerning regarding things that happened with the coof um and other things but i don't think that that's the case i think he was surrounded by um a lot of very uh crafty advisors who were well, making that because sure that he made bad decisions. Insofar as the World Economic Forum, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, Jack Dorsey to a certain extent, insofar as he's dumped money into CRT, all these huge entities, we can play local, but we also mm-hmm. need to think global and in, in oh, confronting yeah. this. So, so the question is, how do we politically, how do we scope the political landscape put our support in the people who would be you know, best served to uh, preserve uh, an island of freedom from this increasing governmental overreach. I mean, that right we can there, do in big way, is the reason why I don't know if DeSantis for president is the best idea because DeSantis for governor preserves an island yeah. in Florida of not just freedom, but resistance against the federal government. The governors have you know, relatively limited power versus the federal government, but they have quite a bit of power versus the federal government. And um, so, you know, having a handful of governors of, of DeSantis shrewdness and backbone would actually be would actually go a long way. Uh, figuring out who those people are and putting weight behind them and removing people who are still stuck playing the old school game. Um well, what's that game, the money game. Yeah. Well, are we going to one one party roulette said earlier that all politics is a power grab. So we're going to have to think who how can we sculpt the resistance in order to get benefactors whose self-interest will be served. You know, the big donors, big 
like if we can get Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk to start playing this game and fund, we 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 have to think bigger than that. I don't know if I'm I'm it's sure sure. I mean Bezos is not going to play this game. ESG goes burr. Musk, however, while he has weaknesses with regard to deals he makes with China, um, that I find concerning. Musk is not very on board with this ESG stuff. Um, he's not very on board with a lot of these programs. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, he just went on, what was it? Was it on the, the Babylon B podcast? And he talked about, you know, how wokeness is terrible <laughs> in a variety of ways. And, you know, he, he made a lot of, of, of comments in, in that regard or that direction. So, you know, what he wants to do or throw money behind or how he wants to approach it, I, that I don't know. But, um, how we convince people with means, given that the vast majority of them obtain their means by being gigantic neoliberals, uh, yeah. is is a open question uh, upon which a lot hangs. Now, one thing we'll point out is that you know that absurd amounts of money are going into the, whether it's woke, whether it's these J6 productions on television, whatever. Yeah. And, I mean, they the amount the number of dollars that they have to spend to create, you know, one point of effectiveness, whatever that looks like, is a lot more than uh, the opposition has to spend to create one unit of effectiveness. And the reason is because they're trying to maintain a pseudo reality that people see or and they're also being tyrants and people don't like that. And like, so there's a ton of natural resistance against it, whereas, yeah people resisting it have, well, we may not have every answer on our side, or at least we're not lying, right? We don't have to lie. We, we actually literally don't have to lie. We can say, do you, I mean, I, if people fail to appreciate how simple some of this counter activism to wokeness really is saying, yeah, I mean, it's like people think, oh my God, I'm not a PhD. I don't have like, uh, you know, a degree in this stuff. Literally men and women different, like, that's that that's a simple truth that obliterates pages and pa volumes of their nonsense mm -hmm. and as you know the 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 immortal scene out of uh kindergarten cop boys have a penis girls have a vagina like whoops gender theory in the toilet yeah you know it's like it's that freaking simple uh and so what that boils down to is that um, the resistance to wokeness requires far fewer resources per unit of success than uh, the woke side does because they are trying to create something artificial and reality always has a gigantic amount of advantage on its side. Um, you know, the problem is, is that in certain um, if if the powers that be or if any power group or um, there are certain conditions in which this mass formation psychosis i don't know why we came up with that new term it's just craziness right the, one, the conditions for evergreen the conditions for what we saw in 2020 and the conditions with regard to the response to the vaccine and the response to covid it always has to do with turning up the heat making things life or death life mm -hmm. or death and the same thing if you get into uh, the trans ideology the radical trans ideology they'll say you either have a trans kid or a dead kid like that is your choice. So they yeah, but nobody cares about out. that anymore. That's the problem. Is and I don't mean nobody, nobody, but I mean the number of people like when they ratchet up the fear porn, the number of people who just say you're ratcheting up the fear porn, okay, and then that's it. They don't like when COVID hit the scene. 
there were a, there were some people who had the foresight to realize kind of what was going on and they were speaking about it and bless them for doing so at the time. There were people who saw through the 15 days to slow the spread, but a lot of people were like, oh my gosh, how bad is this? What are we going to do? I think there's right now that if it literally was, and it might end up being given the things they've telegraphed, if it were actually something as bad as smallpox, there'd be a bunch of people saying, so what? We're not locking down. You're not doing it to us, to us again. And so the fear thing, it's like they called wolf way too many times. And you're like, oh, you're going to have a trans kid or a dead kid. It's like, okay, bye. Like, and no, but there are so many people now who just don't give a fuck about their moral extortion rackets and their fear mongering Okay. that something's different now. And it's, I mean, it's radically different than two or three years ago where, you know, even with what I've just said, you would have, you're like, you know, it's, you're going to have a trans kid or a dead kid. And I would have been like, well, let's no, I'm just like, yeah, fuck that. Okay, great. Don't care. Not my fucking problem. And that's so it sounds like you have faith in, in so common many sense, people have now, like they've pushed it too far. And the red pill is not a political orientation. It's not that you now have to believe that they've turned Mount Rushmore into a bunch of oranges, <laughs> an orange grove. It is not that the red pill is not being bullied by these extortion rackets anymore, whether it's fear, it's a psychological extortion racket, whether it's you're a bad person or you don't care, like. It, it actually turns out to be simple and freeing to say, you know what? You're right. I don't care. Best of luck to you. I hope you sort it out. I'll pray for you or whatever and to move on with your life and not have to go through like there's that that meme, that comic. And it's like the mental gymnastics involved in believing in Santa. And you're just like, Santa's here. The mental gymnastics involved in not believing in Santa. And it's like all the different arguments and like the flying yeah. over a burning car and everything, you know, and it's like. People are starting to realize that just saying, yeah, screw that, is the top frame of that meme. And playing along is the bottom frame of that meme. And again, that means they have to spend so many more resources to get people to go through all of those layers. Okay. So, so it's the I'm not saying that we're jam. out of the you, woods. I'm just you, saying okay. that something's fundamentally changed in the past three years where they try to ratchet up this fear, this life and death, this everything's an emergency. And people are like, We'll get by. Do you think that they'll change tactics then? Will they change I mean, tactics? they'll have to. They yeah. will have to. I, mean, I don't um, think that the global infrastructure or the superstructure whatever is, is going to stop. I mean, I'm still going to shop th for things on, on Amazon, try to buy less Chinese things, but I still need a dash cam. Right? Yeah, the, the, that's the tricky thing. Um, the law of convenience still wins, and they have that yeah. you know, largely on their side. So it is going to require, you know, cultivating political leaders who can start to put frames back around these things that, that okay. you know, I mean, we should really at this point literally be talking about a constitutional amendment of, to bodily autonomy in some regard that's carefully worded and basically literally makes it that the government cannot compel you to put any medical anything into your body, whether it's vaccine, whether it's a chip, whether it whatever and be excluded from the basic participation in society, including things like, I mean, I don't know, I'm not the lawyer writing the wording, I'm just riffing here, but, you know, things like banking access to, uh, you know, typical establishments in society, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, but it's going to require some house cleaning. The communists have, I mean, I don't want to do the dehumanizing thing, but I'm actually paraphrasing off of, you know, something Christopher Hitchens very famously said is that the termites have delved deeply and dined well. And it's going to be a real process to get to get this problem sorted out. But 
Yeah. I think that, that something has already fundamentally shifted. I don't know whether we win or lose. I'm optimistic at this point, cautiously optimistic, whereas we've spoken before and I was, you know, quite clearly, hopefully pessimistic. I was fairly blackpilled for a while. I'm cautiously optimistic. I don't have delusions that this is, you know, everything's going to be rose gardens and, and orange groves. It's just going to be this perfect situation. I think it's going to be ugly, but I actually think yeah. we're likely to get out of it. It's 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 uh, really easy to succumb to despair. I was I had this brilliant conversation with this brilliant woman. Uh, she runs this uh, blog called Fourth Wave Now, and she's been reporting on transgender medical health once her daughter self-identified and wanted to change her body to match up with the gender that she had in her mind. And halfway through the conversation, we start going into all the different psychoses you know trans is just one part of it and if you go and speak with jonathan peugeot he'll talk in religious symbolical language but you look at one issue after another issue after another issue i mean there's rumors that washington's trying to kind of rejigger the law so they can put people in covid camps i looked into that it it could be possible and i wouldn't put it past them but it still seems to be more of a rumor but it's really easy for people who begin to take that red pill or begin to wake up to this and say the data's right there but the narrative's right here why do so many people look at the narrative it's really easy for people to lose hope and to get completely overwhelmed by you know go through a black pill phase so maybe now that you've gone through it what are some of the things that began to change your attitude and and allow you to relax a little bit and and uh suffer hope. So first thing that'll help you white pill a little bit is that it's very obvious that our opponents are stupid. And I, I think I've said this before. They've, they're running an ad campaign that strokes are normal in children. Heart attacks are normal in children. They're running campaigns about like there's signs on buses that say stuff like they're stupid. You'd have to be a fucking moron to put that out there. Like that's your last stopgap defense right there. You know, <laughs> they keep on topping themselves. And it is. I know. It's like, it. oh, the million reasons why people who are at the peak of physical fitness should be having heart attacks on the playing field, even though you've watched sports your entire life and it's never happened before. No, it happens all the time. They're stupid. They're trying to convince people of things. It's one thing to put out a narrative and, you know, oh, my gosh, yeah. look at this model. This many people could die of COVID. What The elderly, we have to protect. We have to do our part. It's one thing to put out a narrative like that. It's another thing when you start saying it's normal for kids to have diseases or for have, have things that, that kill old people. That's totally normal. Yeah, kids having strokes, kids having blood clots, kids having having um, cancer, kids having like what? That's normal. That's totally normal. It's always been part. Top athletes in their 30s dropping dead on the playing field in the middle of a soccer match. It happens all the time. Like, nobody believes this crap. So there's that's a white pill. They're, they're stupid. But where the black pill for me comes from, and I think it's for many people, is that you go through this process. You take first the red pill because you're not going to black pill till you've red pilled. And so you red pill and you realize, holy shit, they're lying to us. And then you get very excited about this. You start telling people, this doesn't add up. That doesn't add up. This doesn't add up. That doesn't add up. And what you run into is more and more and more and more people who are like, yeah, huh? It adds up because do 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 do, and it's just like they give these stupid, bogus, fallacious arguments or bad data or whatever, and you start to believe, oh my God, so many people are going along with this, and we need lots of people to not go along with this to get it to stop. And there's so much power, and and you start to, but it's really when you, well, for me, I black pill when I start realizing like, oh my gosh, you know, they put out a new narrative and people just believe it. Then after you go through that phase, because you're when you first red pill, you're kind of on fire, like right, you want to red pill the world. 
and then you can't red pill a lot of people and you black pill because you can't red pill people. And then you start to realize people are red pilling all over the place. Like what I just said, where people are like, you know, oh, well, if it's I, seriously, I'm telling you, if, if they release smallpox or if smallpox gets loose next month, there will be a lot of people who overreact and they're going to be a shocking number of people who said things a year ago, like if this was a dangerous disease like smallpox, maybe, but it's COVID. And what they're going to say is, no, we're not locking down this time. That's how you got us. And so the number of people who are kind of figuring it out is very encouraging because ultimately that's what it comes down to. You have a small number of people, relatively speaking, who have their hands on extraordinary levers of power. And when it really comes down to it, I know you can, you start to black pill thinking, Oh my God, there's so many teachers who are in on this stuff. They have very little power in the end. And one strong act of sweeping legislation could actually change a lot of that stuff very, very quickly. One decision by the, by a court could change a lot of that very quickly. Um, but there are a very small number of people who have a lot of power, people like Macron who want to piss everybody in France off, right? And then people like Trudeau, people like Biden, people like Klushub, people like Angela Merkel. They, they have lots of power. There's a small number, yeah. like a few hundred people. And it turns out that there are a couple billion people who are getting to the point where they're like, we're done with this, cut it the hell out. And I don't advocate this i want this to not happen to be very clear but i just watched a video it went viral on the internet where some mayor in brazil in some town in brazil tried to put like a mandate mask or vax or some kind of mandate i don't know which one i don't know i don't care about the detail here on his citizens and his citizens were like no and they was like we have to do this and they literally dragged him into the street into the dirt road into the front of the center of town kicking him and beating his ass and it's like I'm not saying this is what should happen. What I'm saying is that there's a small number of people in positions of high power that know that the end of the road is either to back off or it's going to go there eventually. But it's not going to be a couple hundred angry Brazilians and a mayor. It's going to be like some serious house cleaning and people are going to go to prison forever or worse. And they're starting to get that memo. Um, prison would be actually the ideal solution would be I said this on Twitter and people got all pissed off because they didn't understand what I meant. The ideal solution would be like what happened in Cambodia when Khmer Rouge ended, although there's some complication there about the Vietnam situation as well. But more or less, they had just murdered all these people. They'd gone, obviously, the point being that they had already crossed this line into way too far. The people recognized way too far. They're like, we're not doing this anymore. And very few people ended up in prison. Very few people ended up being killed as the Khmer Rouge was removed from power in Cambodia. And the majority of them ended up just, it was like, go get your farm, get the hell out of here, you're not in power anymore. And they got removed from, from they got their hands taken off the levers of power. And if you read things like, you know, political panorology, the guy talks about that there's no reason to be inhumane to these malicious leaders or malicious people. There's just the need to keep their hands off the levers of power. And so, you know, the movement to take their hands off the levers of power becomes extraordinarily important. Not just for our yeah. own good, but for everybody's own good. But I'm still convinced the white pill is that there are enough people realizing that their fundamental liberties, their freedom, their, their lives for their children and grandchildren, and the quality of life is significantly enough at risk now with what this so-called Great Reset is supposed to be and do that the line, the uncrossable line is going to get crossed. Uh, and in one way or another, hopefully the most peacefully possible— 
there's going to be that we're not doing this anymore. Yeah. I, I just, it, it, I don't, I don't think most people would uh, reboot January 6th, but I do think that the powers that be would cast anything that resists their power into the same bucket of January 6th. They oh, of obviously have a agenda to not allow, insofar as Trump wasn't a plant, to not allow another uh, deviation from their little racquetball contest of, of elitism up there. They're, oh, they're not going to let that happen again, but there might be a place that are um, a line in the sand where they say, okay, we have to lay off this stuff because our real backers or, you know, a mass amount of, of Americans who are middle-class or upper middle-class or even rich Americans, they, they're no longer going along with this anymore. So we're going to kind of reel back things or maybe wokeness just keeps on going and, and they piss off the leftoids so much that, that they suffer, um, you know, the consequences from, Antifa and then Antifa actually save America by dethroning the neoliberals somehow. I mean, it's dimly possible. I don't know that that'll actually work out um, in that regard or that way. Uh, I've heard that these um, types of things don't end, that the right can't actually put a stop to them. It actually has to wait until the center and the left wake up against them as well. Uh, I don't know. Um, I just... I, I just kind of keep coming back to it. The amount of resources that they have to put in to get one unit of success now is not only extremely high, but increasing. Whereas the amount of resources that anybody else has to put in to get a unit of success is not only very low, but is probably rapidly Almost, decreasing. Yeah, spontaneous, what you say with the red pill. People are kind of red-pilling red themselves just by looking at the media and just uh, their, their cognitive dissonance just finally collapses them into a clear state of mind i mean just again like on the level of this is the thing the black pill and the white pill are kind of in a sense the same pill you just have to realize how you how you look at it um for example a lot of people black pill looking at what insley just did speaking of your fine state where he's announced that you know suggesting too much about election misfeasance uh i guess that's pronounced misfeasance whatever malfeasance Malfeasance, apparently. Apparently, you don't say essence. You just say essence. 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 So the I point is, he said that, that he, he said that talking basically about election fraud in a way that could incite a riot because every day is J six now. Um, you know, is going to be made illegal in Washington, the state of Washington. And so it's like there are people who will see that and they're going to think, oh no, they have so much power that's actually going to pass. And then there are people who see that and that are like. Red pill hurricane. That's a bunch more people who just realized, holy crap, this is really happening. This really is what it looks like. And, um, or what we feared. Same thing as like when you saw the videos from cities in Europe, what was it, like the Netherlands or whatever, where like they have the dog like ripping that guy's arm off because he's like not vaccinated or something. You look at that and you think, oh my God, it's that bad. Holy crap, they have so much power. And what you don't understand is that 200 million people saw this and realized, wow, they're playing for keeps. It's like that then. And so these things, these, it's like they've overreached. And because as we talked about before, they've crossed the Rubicon and they know they've crossed the Rubicon. They can't go backwards because they're going to be removed from, if they were all like, okay, we back off now, they're going to get taken out of their positions. Some of them are going to go to prison. Um, 
they're never going to have power again. So they have no option but to keep going forward and they keep. So what they do is they overreach. And then in response to having overreach, they overreach again. They let their hang out. No, they don't. They can no, the, keep distending the hanging out. This, yeah, this isn't the hanging out part. Oh, okay, this is, okay. sorry. All right. Yeah, this, this is a different answer. thing. Okay. This yeah. is them overreaching and then overreaching more and overreaching more. And every time they overreach, this is what I said. I don't know if we talked about it, but I said this a long time ago. Is that they needed a top-down, bottom-up pressure to squeeze the middle out. And they lost the bottom. And you think, well, if they lost the bottom, everything's going to fall out. Well, it does, but it takes time. And they're still pressing down. Well, what do you mean top. by the bottom? You're not talking about the shock troops. You're talking about reality? The, or I'm something? talking about normal people. Normies. Okay. okay. The, they needed a real grassroots bottom-up movement with lots of support. So Black Lives Matter went berserk after George Floyd died. Millions upon millions of normal people put black squares on their profiles, on their Instagram or whatever. They went to these stupid rallies that were happening. You know, they complained about the police shooting rubber bullets or tear gas. They said the police were really bad. They got kind of radicalized into it. And then within a few months, you actually had critical race theorists complaining that we had all this energy and already there's white fatigue. (laughs) Like the white people, like... (laughs) They're not. They're not I doing lo- it. Anymore. I love how they. They're so sadistic. I love how they hate white people. No matter what white people do, they just keep on like wanting to whip the white person again. That's it's all just, they've got. It's evergreen. That's all they really have. It's all they got. They hold it up as the uh, like thing that's greater than great and unfairly so, and then they scapegoat it as the cause of everybody's problems. Yeah. So it's whiteness here. It was. It was Jews in Germany in the thirties. 40s. Zionism still pops up from time to time, speaking of the left and their tactics. I wanted to ask you about something, a salacious tweet. I don't know if you're being facetious or not, but you were Probably. salacious. You were saying about something to the effect that uh, you're inclined to agree more and more with conservatism or conservatism or conservatives. It sounds like you, you were you flirting? Did I say that? You said something along the lines that I probably you... said that I noticed that when I talk about conservatives, I use the pronoun we. Yeah. Okay. That's what it is. So, yeah. are you? Is, that sounds like an identity. Are you? Is your I don't identification? know. Because it's a matter of convenience too. Because it gets tedious to have to continually kind of say, Classical you know, you liberal. guys, and I'm not really one. Oh, okay. and yeah. I don't think that actually. To be honest with you, at this point, I certainly Republican Democrat don't mean anything, and I don't or aren't really that. They do, but they're not that relevant. Um, I don't even know if that left and right are. They're somewhat relevant. They're more relevant, but conservative and liberal, it's, it's, are you a statist or not is really where it comes down. Oh, okay. Are you, are you a statist or an individualist, um, is really kind of the big dividing line. Uh, and so the, we I'm thinking about are actually people that are against this tyranny. Um, I mean, every time I listen to conservatives, they're like, I'm like, yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. Ugh. Oh, oh no. And then, okay, yeah. You know, it's like that. And so it's, there are parts of it that I think are just great. And there are parts of it that I think are just like, well, maybe it's okay, but it's not me. Um, is this, or is this like a, to be very low res, is this the uh, social, fiscal, conservative, uh, fiscal, uh, liberal, yeah, social, I don't know. I don't know that I'm, I'm probably moderately fiscally conservative and, so, but there's there's more dimensions to that. Socially, yeah. quite liberal, 
but then um, as as things go and what kind of what liberal should truly mean. And then but when you start looking at st- I'm, I'm certainly not a leftist in any regard. And in fact, I'm at this point an anti-leftist uh, proudly. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm a rightist it, that I just it's almost or like a libertarian. Stepped, you know, you're not in the abolish all of, government. Like, because rightism is bad, like hard rightism and hard leftism are both bad, and I like, have no use for either one of them. And I certainly, though, like the left has has scared the shit out of me so bad that I probably will never support left politics again in my life. I, I don't know that it's recoverable at this point. Um, and yeah, you can I, say, well, if it's really the corporatist fascists and neoliberals who are in charge, that's really right. I don't, I don't care. Anybody who wants to exert that level of control over everybody else and they're using left-wing ideology to do it is, as far as I'm concerned, a fucking leftist and you've scared the shit out of me so bad, I'll never support it again. But I'm not going to support – I'm not going to go kiss the ring of Dick Cheney all of a sudden who's going to be my arch conservative because he's not. He's he's not either. He's part of the same problem. Like, Which is totalitarian control, which is yeah. complete control by the state. Yeah. I don't – I. When I start thinking about horseshoe theory now, like at the left and right, get, you bend them far enough close together to the same thing. It's I think that that doesn't mean something. I think that we think it means. I actually think it means that we've defined left and right incorrectly. That left and right shouldn't be touching one another at the ends. And mm. so what's real is that we probably should they start touching each other at the beginnings. They shouldn't touch each other anywhere. Why not? Just a little bit of like left right little menage yeah. a deux duo duo. Manajo two. Manajo <laughs> two. <laughs> so what's what's coming up next for you? Oh, uh, you got your book, Race Marxism, which I still haven't found the right title to to to, to caress you and to change that you is the, the name. Title. Like we already made a cover page and stuff. Okay, well like, it's there. It's set. Race Marxism. And then Do the subtitle is The Truth About Critical Race Theory and Praxis. There we go. How, is it Simple. big? Is it small? Can it, can you leave it on a train and change somebody's mind? The book? Yeah. It's big. It's oh, big. it's a biggie. 100,000 words. 100,000? How much Cynical of those are notes? was about 80, 78. Yeah. yeah. This is a significant piece of work that you pumped out in six months. What? Well, I pumped most of it out in 10 days. Like Jack Kerouac with a bunch of bezanine on the road. Um, bezanine? Whatever. It doesn't matter. But uh, I found out wow. that Candide wrote, or sorry, Candide, that Voltaire wrote Candide in like a weekend. Yeah. It that happens. Is, yeah. I think that's how it works. I think Nietzsche wrote a lot of his crap. Like he would go on a yeah. bender and write for like a week and write two philosophical treatises and then nothing for a couple months or a year. Well, at least at least you have a woman to regulate you. Uh, Nietzsche didn't have that and he ended. That's true. Yeah, a lot of people think I'm quickly. an incel or something, but no, I believe it or not, I'm still married. Yeah. To a great woman. To a great woman. So you got this book coming up, or is there any like media like in a penumbra around it? Are you going to go on a tour? There probably you... will be. Yeah, I mean, I'm, okay. I'm going on Rogan in like oh, yeah. a little over a week. Yeah, okay. Rogan on the 19th. How long does it take for his episodes to be published? Do you know? About a week or two weeks or something? 16 to 24 hours usually okay. is what I've seen. I don't know. Oh, that's wow. back. Okay. That's, I don't know. Because now it's like Spotify like and I don't know how that works. Okay. So I take it back. I don't know. Is it just you? Because last time you yeah, were on, you were me, with Peter, just me right? And Joe. All right. And that'll be a good warm up act for Peterson. He's apparently going on on the 24th a few days later. So. Oh, wait. You're going on Peterson or Peterson's going no, on Joey? No, no. Peterson's oh, going okay. on Rogan after okay. I am. 
All right. Okay. Well, that was maybe, warm effect. Just kidding. Maybe. Yeah. No. Maybe. Yeah. You're like the Stone Temple pilots to Peterson's Guns and Roses. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm probably going to try to reach out and do some more media. Hopefully, I'll go down to Dallas and have a, a so-called Blaze Day, which sounds like it's drugs, but it's really going on a lot of conservative media back to back, which oh. probably feels like being on drugs. Um, <laughs> a lot of cocaine. Go to the Blaze, Blaze Studios circles, and do yeah. you know a bunch of shows in a row. Yeah. Uh, if I can there, arrange it, I haven't tried. Um, have there been any, uh, significant encounters over the last month? Uh, like in your No, I went or... to the turning point thing and then. Yeah, that was Kyle. Did you meet Kyle? I did uh, not Ryle meet Kyle. No, no. Uh, I met Kyle's bodyguard. I met Marjorie Taylor Greene. I met Roseanne Barr. Um, oh. Hmm. That was all fun. But who was um, the be- best drinker among all those? I don't know. It was during the day, so. Oh, okay. Everybody's sober. Just based on, I mean, you shouldn't stereotype based on being like six foot seven and gigantic muscular dude, but I'm betting that Kyle's bodyguard could probably drink more than either of those two fairly small oh, women. No. Roseanne is a. Uh, but yeah, Roseanne. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the, are those significant encounters? I had a good time there though. And then I got sick. Like apparently everybody who went to it, no. was allegedly it, it was not Koof, but I was oh. sick for Christmas. Which was okay, because... Like a head cold, a flu, stomachache? It was the weirdest cold I've ever had. It was huh. a head cold department. But it's like, every morning I woke up and I'm like, oh, I'm better. Today is the day. You know, like you wake up and you're like, I'm not all the way out of the woods, but I'll get better today. Like, it's done. And then, like, the sun would go down at night. And by about 9 o'clock, I thought I was going to die. Like, every what? night. Like, the... like. When you get the flu, how sometimes you feel like I might die and I might be okay if that happened. It was like that. Like, and then my symptoms changed like every two days to something different. So it was like, <laughs> like a skin rash. Oh, now it was now like I have throat, And then the next day it was like, or a couple days later, it was like bad head congestion. Then it was like drippy nose, but no, no, maybe the drippy came before the congestion. Then it was felt fine, except that I had these crazy, crazy, like, awful i feel like i'm gonna die aches and pains at night but felt fine during the day and it's like literally just kept dragging out to one thing and the last thing i had was like my ears clogged up and i like it's you know like when you're in an airplane or whatever and they do that thing and you yeah. kind of can't hear until they pop they were like that but like all day and it was, it was, one was way worse than the other it was terrible so you know it wasn't I, it was the strangest cold. I've, well, yeah, the strangest cold I've ever had. Not the worst cold I've ever had, but it maybe lingered. it was like the, just two years of cold, and you, your your immune system just ran through all the stuff that you'd been putting aside. Yeah, apparently. I mean, a lot of people that were at the turning point got it as well. So, um, and it was a psyop. We all seem to have vir- virtually universally tested in the negative. Uh, so, yeah, maybe it was a psyop. Maybe it was a fake disease. Yeah, maybe you guys are uh, that Fake was the virus. Convid. Yeah, Convid. It was it was it was the Omicron <laughs> variant. Have there been okay? So no other significant encounters since we last. I don't talked. think so. No, okay. There was one, but you're not going to oh, talk about no, it. No, I didn't the... meet Trump. Oh, you didn't meet Trump. No, I went to I went to the I went to Mar-a-Lago, and that was cool. We had a good time. And uh, it was a fundraiser, so Trump was not allowed to mingle because it cost a lot of money to meet Trump. So uh, oh. they took his phone away from him and carted him into the back, et cetera. And you're like, Weird. how do you know that they took his phone away? Because he called when we were at dinner <laughs> and explained why we didn't meet with him. 
Um, so we went out to dinner and Trump called while we were at dinner. That really uh, did happen. Uh, but there's been no meeting with Trump. Okay. Did everybody like stand and clap after Trump called uh, in the in the restaurant? No, it was really loud. But uh, everybody okay. uh, stood and clapped. But we were all standing up when it happened when Trump spoke at Mar-a-Lago. What was the content? How's he doing? What What's his? Uh, I mean, I guess, it was uh, a Trump speech. It was oh, okay. You know, he so, kind of yeah. came out and said it was supposed to be for for Ken Paxton, the Attorney General of Texas. So he said like some nice things about him for you know, thirty seconds, and he talked about <laughs> all of his political rivals and how <laughs> stupid people are. And it was really funny, and he's actually yeah. hilarious. And then twenty something yeah. minutes later, he said a little bit more good stuff about Ken Paxton, and then he said that we were all great Americans, which I knew he meant he, me. And then he, he all left. Of you. All of James is a great American. Yeah. I mean, he clearly, I was there. So. Well, I, I bring up Trump. I brought up Trump earlier, but just in light of our conversations about uh, kayfabe or k- kafabe, um, that, kayfabe. That, the big show, the big WWE world wrestling style of politics, is that necessarily... I mean, it's fun, but it's very divisive. So I don't know if that is the path forward anymore. Is that the path forward anymore? Speaking of, I I'm speaking to the most reasonable person on the internet uh, when asking this question. I'm aware of that, but there's there's this new there's this new vibe that's rising up where it's not just you know the straight performative kind of joke, but that's there, right? It's contained within. You continue to do that, but then you're always making like serious points too. And a lot of times you're dropping the serious point through this kind of kayfabe looking approach. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how to, to characterize it. It's like a vibe and I kind of like intuit this and I see, you know, I see this kind of being the direction that, that um, more effective players, especially in the resistance, AKA the right right now are doing, um, the, the serious point is being delivered in a way where people recognize it as serious. But th- that mantle of like stuffy respectability and playing by the rules is certainly like okay. that's not coming back for a while. Uh, that's where people are mad about the Dr. Phil. Like I went on Dr. Phil and I didn't play by his rules and whatever. So I looked like a raving idiot. What did you expect? I was going to do? sit there and like cross my legs and have a nice little chat with Dr. Phil. Like, oh, yeah. fuck you. Like there's a, there's a different thing happening now where, uh, I don't know how to characterize it, but certainly there's like the, I mean, look at the Twitter today with all the oranges. Like there's still that, that's still kayfabe. But at the same time, you know, there's this, there's, it's, it's not just like entertainment political entertainment anymore it's being used to deliver kind of very strategic political messages um in a much more clear way so you know Hmm. uh so it's both tempered and more substantial than you're saying so there's still the bombasticness but there's actual some ordinance inside of the bombasticness there's when it's bombastic people know they're being bombastic it, like it's really obvious. It's like it's being made more obvious that they're being bombastic. Uh, and then what's happening is underneath that, there's a relax, a relaxation and more authenticity. Like you see, DeSantis got in trouble for saying that you know whatever it was was a gigantic Charlie Foxtrot operation or whatever, which is code for clusterfuck. And um, you know people, oh, yeah. it's like so. There, that's 
that's not in the respectable set, but it wasn't disrespectable. It's like the let's go Brandon thing, right? Uh, is It's kind of in the same thing. It means something rude, sort of, but not necessarily. And so it's more like let's go Brandon politics rather than... Okay. Then, you know, this kind of bombastic, you know, Trump winning every election till the end of time, Trump infinity 04 or whatever that he, yeah. you know, he, he did that little thing, a uh, video he made a while back. So there's, yeah. there's still elements yeah. of that, but there's this whole thing where like what De- DeSantis did was more authentic. Like that's how DeSantis former military guy is just going to talk. He's just going to say, yeah, it's what we would call a, call a Charlie Foxtrot. You know, it's just kind of got this relaxed and the in crowd gets it. And then, it, you know, there's there is that element there. Um, but the thing where it's like. Like the trolling is more strategic and rather than more than than so ubiquitous. Um, I think that would be the way to put it. Could you just uh, define like the trolling in that aspect? Look at the oranges on Twitter. Okay, oranges on Twitter. Like I put a picture of the fucking AOC Statue of Liberty today with an orange over its face. Like that's. Like I put that on Twitter, like that's obviously just trolling. Um, but it's like, I think that's a good, that's a, it's a good, um, I, if once we lose, once one loses their sense of humor, um, then one is more prone to getting into some sort of conspiratorial or tribal battle. And the, uh, the ability to make a joke or to cloak things shows that you're relaxed enough to think ahead. You still have subtlety on your side, not necessarily nuance, but subtlety on your side. And I think that it's like those, um, there was this training manual I read. If you ever get like stuck in a hostage situation or somebody wants to extract, extract, uh, information out of you, you do whatever you can do to exert your, your free will, whether it's like moving your legs when you're told not to, or moving your chair or just these little, little movements of freedom so that you're, uh, kind of, it's not as bombastic as going full kayfabe, full postmodernism, but it's enough to show that we are, you know, like the, the people that there's inside, there's, there's this level of debate. There's this level of understanding that, that we have, there's a wry smile, that that's 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 uh, countering that stuffiness that tends to choke people and and stop people from being able to speak the truth. A lot of that elitism or the sub elite, the very smart people, are still caught up in being polite. And this this is a way to to be wry and and still. Not yeah, be I mean, that, I think I think that that's that that's key, right? It's there, there's this what let's go Brandon's about is that let's go Brandon because literally. It, there's nothing wrong in the entire universe with saying let's go Brandon, even though it's obviously it's standing in place for for fuck Joe Biden. And the media gave it to us by, you know, the crowd chanting fuck, fuck Joe Biden, fuck Joe Biden or whatever. And then the reporters interviewing Brandon, uh, the race car driver, and is like. <laughs> and the crowd's really going crazy back there. They're chanting, uh, let's go, Brandon. And, you know, or however she did it, it's close to that. And um, I don't know if she was trying to be cute or trying to pull a media, you know, distortion. Mm. I still, I mean, I watched it like 30 times trying to decide. And I just <laughs> totally was convinced she was just trying to be cute in that weird moment. Yeah. But either way, the world took off with it. And so let's go, Brandon. They have, they, they can't censor it. They look like clowns. Like saying that let's go Brandon is hate speech. And we saw that on Christmas Eve or whatever where the the, <laughs> the guy said it to Biden and Biden was like, let's go Brandon. I agree. <laughs> Whew. Uh, yeah. Son. So it's like it's a thing they can't control. 
Because if it was fuck Joe Biden, there's like, oh, it's so improprietous. Then you're arguing, did people say fuck Trump and did it say fuck, mm-hmm. fuck Joe Biden? And it's like you're squabbling. But this is just silly and fun, but it contains yeah. that serious thing at the same time. And everybody knows it, but they can't control it. It's like the orange is all over Twitter. What are they going to do? Label the orange emoji hate speech? They might. It's like my desire to call uh, the things that don't occur, namely vaccine injuries, uh, by, by the term climate change. I think we should call yeah. them climate change every single time. I always think we should call them climate change. Why? What, what's the? Uh, I'm sorry. I'm I'm thick. I'm dense here. Why climate change? Because everything's climate change. Everything. Because if everybody sixth. keeps talking about climate change, when climate change is something that's not allowed to be talked about, then and they have to decide: Are we going to say that climate change is hate speech? <laughs> you, that climate change is is something that shouldn't be talked about. That climate change is a phrase that has to be censored off of social media. You know what is it? What are they going to do with it? And mm. Um, it, it's also stupid. It's also <laughs> stupid in the sense that you know that that's the next step in their little game. So their next step is going to be, oh, it's climate. So, if, you know, climate change is the next big emergency or, or a next big emergency among some that they're going to manufacture, like cybersecurity and probably smallpox or something. But, um, you know, at some point, their goal has always been to transition to climate change. And everybody knows that there's even that meme with Indiana Jones swapping out the COOF particle for the climate change globe. And it's like they've everybody knows it's going there. So if climate change has already become a clown word before you get there and then it simultaneously is a code word, a dog whistle for vaccine injury, it puts them in this weird position where what are they going to do with it, you know? Uh, you know, climate change is a major problem. It's like, well, well uh, this is kind of a master's tool problem. Then, if if you're you're not lying, you're joking. But is is there not some sort of dangerousness in in playing this game? Like, if you're participating, so what what's the danger of it, and how do you uh, forestall yourself? Well, the danger, the biggest it? danger of it, of course, is that you play into their hands by saying repeatedly that climate change is a serious issue. And then they try to hold you to account by saying you said that climate change is a serious issue. But um, how you forestall that is you say, I obviously was using it as a code word to mean vaccine injuries, you clown. And you're just going to make fun of them for being a clown, for having not got the joke. And so but, but the biggest danger is that it plays into what they want the next step to be, is that everybody has to take climate change seriously now. And the again, the way you forestall that is make fun of them for not getting the joke. And you say, no, no, we only take climate change seriously when it means vaccine injury. We don't take climate change seriously when it means this silly stuff um but uh like narrative stuff but this is this is the kind of game that i mean we're generally asking you know what 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 does the political game look like right now is it straight up wwf kayfabe you can tell my age because i still can't call it wwe without thinking about it um (laughs) it used to be f yeah it was f i don't know why they changed it world wrestling federation yeah I don't know. Well, they did. They, they, you see, that was where I think we probably lost everything because it couldn't WFE. be called it. World Wrestling Entertainment. Oh, really? Oh, what? Yeah. Oh. It was political correctness. Striking oh, okay. down on the, on the wrestling, on the I wrestling. Killed so many jokes. Killing more jokes than fact checkers, I'll tell you that much. Fact yeah. checkers. Have you been fact checked yet? Uh, yeah. It, like political? Like, has somebody made one? Like, yeah, one of those, I said like, on things? Twitter. I said on Twitter.com, and then that got mirrored on my other social media. I forget which one. It was Instagram or somebody got really mad at me for it. I said, onion rings cure and prevent COVID-19. Okay. And I got fact-checked for that. Apparently, they like don't. Like, PolitiFact did it? Uh, no, just like the... 
the internal little ones or whatever. Okay, some random. But, I mean, I also put on there that if you take five doses of the vaccine, it makes your dick grow, and they didn't mark that as misinformation. Oh, okay, but only but onion rings. Onion rings curing and preventing COVID nineteen is misinformation. Well, I think it was Burger King. They're like, we don't want to have anything to do with James Lindsay. Like, we just take the. We're just going to get this onion ring. We're going to wash our hands of. of They're this. still mad that I stole the crown. That's their Wait, problem. From the king, you didn't go. Yeah, you didn't go to London. Okay, you 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 went for the Burger King rather than like the Queen of England. If you're going to steal yeah. a crown, no, okay, that, I guess that, that would be a high crime. In, that shows your uh, cat burglar uh, skills to the world. I guess. Are you your saying that Burger King serves targets. cat? No, that that you probably couldn't break into Windsor Castle or whatever it's called, but you could definitely get into like the corporate headquarters of Burger King. No, the crown of the Burger King is it. They have them at every single Burger King. They give them to children. Oh, then you didn't steal it. You just acted like a child and somebody rewarded it to you. Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> just trying to keep you honest, James Lindsay. 